My friends, the gospel lesson this morning is from the gospel according to Luke, the 19th chapter. Let us listen for God's word to us. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Back when our most recent Sheltie, the late great Toonie, was about eight months old, it felt like spring was in the air early, one early April morning, and I decided it might just be time to let him off his leash, to try letting him frolic at our favorite schoolyard up the street the extensive property of what is now School 15 on Hillside Avenue is to this day bounded by huge old-growth trees. And on that spring day, although winter snows still covered the playing field, they were melting rapidly around the base of each tree. We arrived at the schoolyard, and I let Tooney off his leash and he immediately joyfully bounded to the foot of the second or third tree from the street, nosed around, and grabbed something in his mouth. By the time I caught up to him, I could see that it was a recently thawed squirrel carcass, as gray and juicy as you might imagine. And Tooney was not about to let go of his treasure. Up the hill he bounded, and then all over the still snowy playing field, always staying just out of my reach while he chomped on the rotted squirrel. And my shoes and my feet, up to my ankles in snow, became soaked in the icy slush. Finally, it occurred to me to use reverse puppy psychology. I stopped chasing him pretended to ignore him, squatted down and poked in the snow with one hand, saying very loudly to myself, Oh, look, isn't this interesting? 
Within moments, curiosity won out, and Tooney crept over to see what I had found. And as you might be guessing, when he finally came close enough to look, bam, I grabbed him. He dropped the carcass, and all the way home, with my feet sloshing with every step, he heard from me how he would never again get off that leash in his whole life. <laughs> now, fortunately, dogs don't mind hyperbole. They kind of ignore it, and he knew that he would have long ears running through the woods with us anyway. It's exactly what Jesus always does to us in the Gospels, and certainly what his star pupil Luke does to us in this story of Zacchaeus, if we're really listening. Oh, look. And then if our curiosity kicks in, the Lord of the story grabs us. Someone even wrote an article entitled The Gospel of the Look, some 32 instances, they said. You can't miss it that everywhere in Luke, people are in the act of looking, from the shepherds at Jesus' birth right on through. Here in Luke 19 especially, watch the verbs. And I would say, watch out for the verbs. Seeing or looking occurs five times in 10 short verses. If we sidle over to see what he's looking at, we start to discover, though, that what we've always seen in the story may not really be the gist of it, beginning with who we think Zacchaeus is. It's easy to think, oh, cute, at first. After all, we all learned the song in Sunday school from kindergarten on. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. But eventually we default to the common knowledge held even by many Bible scholars. We side with the crowd against the guy someone is called a godfather in the toll-taker mafia. We have good reasons, don't we? A lot of current experience culturally and nationally of how rich guys behave, or certain rich guys anyway, the public kind, the kind in the spotlight and loving it, despised or not. And it's easy to go there the more we learn about the Roman Empire and its politics. Publicans were a very busy lot. To handle vast sums of the empire, they formed associations, something like modern corporations, each headed by a lead bidder and a few officers, backed by numerous investors. They were also moneylenders, speculators, and contractors who supplied materials for the army. So lots of opportunities lay in their hands for cooking the books, doing side deals, graft, and extortion to defraud not only Rome, but their fellow investors and average citizens. It followed that publicans and sinners were routinely lumped together in the public mind, 
viewed as collaborators with the foreign occupation while profiting from the misery of fellow Jews. In his time, even Zacchaeus' shortness would have been taken as a character flaw by their ancient beliefs. And in works of art, too, Zacchaeus comes up short in so many ways. Take his name to Google Images, and you'll be reminded there is just no dignified way to climb up a tree or to sit there with your feet dangling or even to paint that scene. And so we know not to expect a chief tax collector who was rich to act quite the way this one does. The crowd too presents a definite problem for the short man. Lots of prejudice-driven elbows on top of the sheer logistics of seeing overheads in order to glimpse the one he had already heard was accused of being a friend of tax collectors. Social codes of the day meant it was undignified for a grown man to run, and a man of importance would certainly not climb a tree and hang out of its branches like a schoolboy. But with too few real friends in the world, who wouldn't want to know something about this one coming to Jericho, even if it meant embarrassing yourself and doing no, what no self-respecting, distinguished, professional official would do. You're also thrown off balance at the very beginning of the story by the seemingly casual observation Luke makes that Jesus was passing through. Right up front, Luke tells us no significant stop was being planned for Jericho. And yet, this again is a Jesus who freely changes his mind. Seeing Zacchaeus up there in the leaves and the branches, he makes an urgent change of course. Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. With that, we run into yet another destabilizer, Zacchaeus' good Jewish name. That name meant innocent, or clean, or righteous. Already, the story squares off against us with a clue contrary to what we have always believed about him. Given the way we usually read it, you might expect the name to have been synonymous with crooked or greedy, but this one doesn't seem to fit. After all, what's in a name? The journalist Charles Osgood discovered, for example, that over the years some sports figures have had interesting ones. There once was a linebacker at UNC named Sterling Quash. Columbia had a running back named Will Rush. And Indiana once had an offensive lineman whose name was Steve Heaviside. In the town I grew up in, there was a dentist, thankfully not ours, named Dr. Payne. And in the same town, I kid you not, a urologist named Dr. Wee. 
Someone named Wilbur Gaffney once proposed a theory, Gaffney's first law of nomenclature, that you become what your name is. Jesus knows him by name, but so does the crowd, and they're not buying this literal meaning stuff. This guy hasn't just made it to the top echelons of tax collectors, Of that class, he is the chief tax collector. Even before Zacchaeus says a word, though, Jesus sees him and reminds him of his name. Zacchaeus, righteous, come down. Looking up at the little guy unceremoniously hanging out of the branches, Jesus restores his dignity. I must stay at your house today. And the crowd begins to grumble and complain, not just the religious leaders, but everybody. Now, our translators have usually understated the case of how Zacchaeus feels about all this. Zacchaeus is not just happy to welcome him, as our translation mildly puts it, The ancient text makes it forcefully clear that he met Jesus rejoicing, delighted, thrilled even. Our usual assumption about the meeting then and the way we've retold the story from centuries back is that it gives Zacchaeus a convert's resolve to do better, to turn his life around mend his former ways. But here's where Luke squats down again and says, oh, look here, and plays with something just outside our line of vision. Most translators' traditional choice has been to show us a conversion. But the verbs in their original language, their original form, are I give and I am paying back. And they're just as they sound, present tense and ongoing. As one scholar says, expressive of customary action. They don't indicate future intent, but present behavior and a repeated practice rather than just a single act of generosity. Did you notice that Zacchaeus doesn't beg for forgiveness, nor does Jesus offer it? This is a man who has consistently given half to the poor and repaid any wrongs done. That's what the verbs say. Now, the verbs don't save us from ambiguity. They never do. How many times can a person give away half their possessions as an ongoing lifestyle and after a few such giveaways still be described as rich or remain in a position to keep helping the poor? We don't know. But whichever way you decide to read it, Zacchaeus doesn't even wait for Jesus to sit down at his table to make this declaration. It's not after they have some conversation. 
He does it, Luke says, standing there, standing right there, with leaves and bits of tree bark hanging off of him. And then, against the crowd's judgments, Jesus simply takes him at his word. Today, salvation has come to this house. Ooh, those verbs. <laughs> they are, as usual, what makes scripture a living word. Not a nice, clear story that allows us to say, well, that's all wrapped up and put it up on a dusty shelf to display. No, it keeps wrestling with us. It keeps interrogating us. Are Zacchaeus' words a promise of new behavior or turning over a new leaf? Or are they a description of his existing practice? Is Zacchaeus a new repentant disciple or an anonymous Christian all along? Are his words standing there a pledge of future behavior or a description of who he has been trying to be? Like many of us, the crowd already has its mind made up. At best, they think he was a filthy crook who just got saved. Not necessarily, though, because they know anything about him beyond his occupation and his wealth but that he belongs to a class of people regarded as sinners. And so we have to choose the direction of our interpretation. Maybe we are meant to discover, or perhaps Luke is showing us, that the words of the Second Helvetic Confession are true, that God has friends in the world outside the commonwealth of Israel. Caught between the either and the or of the story's implications, maybe we begin to recognize salvation as a holistic thing. Encompassing in either case, however we read this, more than private virtue, but public and economic practice as well. Maybe we're all up there, dangling out of a tree, longing to live into our true name. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me, said the prophet Habakkuk. Waiting, waiting to get close enough for the quick hand of the holy story to reach out and grab us. Waiting for salvation to come to these eyes. What more do you want to see or need to see? Where have we all assumed rather than looking closely? And whom has God put in our daily paths who needs to be perceived with new eyes, a new naivete with different eyes? May the benediction on one who lived up to his name come to us this week as well, perhaps in a slightly different form. Today, salvation has come to these eyes.
May it be so.